Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The word of the Lord. It is a delight and an honor to be with you today. Uh, my name is Matthew Hoskinson. Um, my family is here as well. Uh, my wife, Kimberly, and our five children. And uh, it is truly a joy to be with you. Jim and I, uh, our friends, have gotten to know each other. We are in the same cadre uh, of trainees and incubator at Redeemer State of the City. That's how we first got to know each other. And then along the way, we realized that we're both uh, dads with kids in the same school. Uh, we have four students at Geneva, the Geneva School of Manhattan and one graduate. Um, and so we see each other many mornings at drop-off or afternoons at pickup, and have uh, gotten to know one another and really enjoy one another's fellowship. Um, for the past eight years, I served as pastor of the First Baptist Church on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and uh, finished up my tenure there in May. And uh, since then, I uh, have had opportunities to speak uh, at various churches that I've heard a lot about but haven't had a chance to worship with. And it's been truly a delight and a joy uh, to worship with you today. My text for this morning is our New Testament reading, the passage in Hebrews chapter 3, which you find printed there on page 12. And, and I find this text particularly instructive uh, for what we are about to do in just a few moments. We are about to pray together the Lord's Prayer. And as you can see, I have very imaginatively titled my sermon, Our Father in Heaven, copyright Matthew Hoskinson, 2018. No one ever thought of that for a name before. Um, but, but what I'm hoping uh, to show us is how this passage in Hebrews 3 illuminates for us what it means to pray those first four words, Our Father in Heaven. Because I'm concerned, I, 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 maybe I could even say, I fear that something of the wonder of that phrase is lost on us, our Father in heaven. Because in our Western uh, individualistic world, God, if he exists, God is nothing if he's not a father or a grandfather or the doting old man upstairs. And that's what else would God be? The technical term for this in theology, uh, it, it, this is a reference to the imminence of God, that God is near, that God is close, that he understands, that he's a buddy, that, that you can go to him for wonderful, warm hugs. And there's certainly truth to that. But for most of human history, and in, in, indeed in much of the world even today, that is not the way people have conceived of God. If anything, Historically, people conceived of God not as imminent, but as transcendent, as high and far and removed, as holy and as other. If there is a God, then, well, he must be God. 
So I'll take, for example, the other two great monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism and Islam. Certainly those two have many differences with one another, quite obviously. And yet both of them in their original forms share this view of a transcendent God, but it's not only monotheistic religions. Take polytheistic religions like Hinduism. And you still find uh, in things like Greek and Roman mythology that the gods are above us, that they are distant, that they are in some sense inscrutable, that we cannot understand them because they are too far removed. And yet into this ancient world, And into that religious context, Jesus of Nazareth taught people to begin their prayers by addressing God as their Father in heaven. Not as creator, not as distant one, not as transcendent one, not as holy one. Though all those things are true, he says, pray like this, our Father. He invites us to address God as near. Now you might say that that might be counterintuitive, given uh, the social circumstances of Jesus' day, but why should that strike us with wonder? And that's where I think this passage in Hebrews comes in. As you might guess from the name of the book, Hebrews, the book was written to Hebrews. Uh, That is to Jews, specifically to Jews who followed Jesus as their Messiah, Jewish Christians, we might say. And they were under severe uh, persecution, really for two reasons. One, because they were Jewish, and two, because they were Christian. Uh, From the Gentile world, they experienced persecution with all the rest of their Jewish brothers and sisters. But then, as defectors from Judaism, they also received persecution from Jewish brothers and sisters who had disowned them for uh, making the blasphemous claim that Jesus of Nazareth was Messiah God. And so the writer of Hebrews addresses this letter to these struggling believers under persecution with two goals in mind, two purposes. You might say one theological purpose and one existential purpose. His theological purpose in writing this book is to reestablish the grounds of their confidence in Jesus the Messiah. He is concerned that with all that they're facing, they're losing property, they're being pillaged, they're being forced out of homes. With all that's happening, they might question, well, maybe Jesus really isn't Messiah. Maybe I'm actually wrong. And so the author sets out in this book to reestablish the grounds of their faith in Jesus. But it's not just theological, it's also existential. Because the reason he does not want them to be moved from Jesus is that he does not want them to give up in the face of persecution. He wants to inspire them, press on, continue. And that's why our author begins chapter three here with this comparison between Moses and Jesus. You see it there in the passage. Consider Jesus, verse one, who was faithful, verse two, as Moses. You see, the writer is trying to ground their faith in what they knew before, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And in verse five, he quotes directly from the Hebrew scriptures when he says, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. You could actually put quotation marks around that line because it's a direct quotation from the Hebrew scriptures. Specifically, it's a quotation from Numbers chapter 12. Now, Numbers 12, you, if you know your Old Testament history, you might remember this story. The people of Israel have already gone through the Red Sea. They've already received the law at Sinai. 
and now they are on their way towards the promised land. They have not gotten to, you know, the 12 men who went to spy on Cain and 10 were bad and 2 were good, right? Remember that song? Anyone learn that song? I learned that song. I was just so happy that I could use my fingers. Like, that, that's a great song. Um, we're not there yet. So we're talking like a year, maybe two years max from the time that they walked through the Red Sea. The story that's quoted in verse five happens. And, and what the story is, is of Moses' older brother, Aaron, and older sister, Miriam, getting jealous of their kid brother, Moses. Now I know that never happens anymore. This is a one-off event where an older sibling would look at a younger sibling with envy. But yet, that, you know, we trust the scriptures, and apparently at least this one time this happened. Okay. Well, they were upset with him because they said, Moses, you think you're so great. You think you're the only one that God talks to. Well, God talks to us too. And, and why shouldn't we have more of a say in the leadership of these people? God is so upset by Aaron and Miriam that he comes down in Numbers chapter 12 and addresses them and says this, Numbers 12, verses six through eight. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant, Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face. Clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This is quite a statement. God is saying, you're right, Aaron. You're right, Miriam. Moses is not the only one that I've talked to. I talked to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I've even talked to you. However, with all of them, I spoke in dreams and riddles. But with Moses... I've spoken face to face because he is faithful as a servant in my house. Do you see what God is doing? He's taking the great Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even the great ones of Moses' day, and he's elevating Moses for his faithfulness. This is a faithful servant. You should not speak against him because I speak to him like I've never spoken to anyone before. That's Numbers 12. Now, Look what our author in Hebrews does with that story. He takes this pinnacle prophet, Moses, and without denigrating him in the least, he says, there's someone greater. Verse five, yes, it's true. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, but verse six, Christ, the Messiah, that's what Christ means. It's not Jesus' last name. The Messiah is faithful as the son of, over God's house. Do you see, hear the comparison? I'm going to take the pinnacle example of someone I spoke to in the Old Testament, Moses. Faithful servant in God's house and compare him to Jesus, the Messiah, who is faithful as a son, not a servant, over, not in. Something greater has come. Someone greater has come. At his best, Moses was but a, uh, merely a faithful servant. There is only one who is the son, and that one is Jesus, the Messiah. And friends, that begins to unlock the wonder of what it means for us to pray our Father in heaven. You say, how so? There's only one person 
who inherently has the right to call God his father. Only one. For all eternity, there's only one who can lay claim to the title Son of God simply by being who he is. And it's not the great lawgiver Moses. It's not the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Friends, not even the Spirit of God is the Son of God. The only one who has the right to call God his Father is Jesus. And friends, that's why it's so remarkable that Jesus invites his people to begin their prayers with the phrase, Our Father in heaven. It's not just that the ancient world conceived of God as transcendent, but that God, it is that God is so transcendent that only one person in the entire universe has the right to address that transcendent one as Father, and that one is Jesus. But if it's true that Jesus is the singular Son of God, how then can he instruct ordinary people like us and even encourage us to pray our Father? Well, it's the same way that I can call Kurt Immel my father here on earth. Now, most of you don't know who Kurt Immel is. But you can guess that he's not my biological father. Last name's different. Big giveaway, right? And because he's not my biological father, from the day of my birth until July 7th, 2000, I had no right to call him dad. But something happened on July 8th, 2000, that changed my status, that changed my relationship. You know what happened? I married Kimberly Immel. Now, from the day of her birth all the way to our wedding day and beyond, she has had every right to call Kurt Immel her father and to enjoy all the privileges and benefits of being one of his children. And when she married me, she and I became one. And at that moment, she shared with me all the privileges and blessings of being a child of Kurt Immel. Now, it just so happens that my father-in-law and mother-in-law are here today. I did not bring them as stage props. Actually, as I was reviewing this this morning, I thought, I'm not, I don't know if my father-in-law really wants me to use him as an illustration, but I'm not going to ask either. I'll ask later. This is one of the privileges of sonship, right? I can go back and ask for forgiveness. He's already said yes. I've already married his daughter. Um, but do you see my point? I share in the privilege of being Kurt Immel's child by virtue of my union with Kimberly, right? Friends, how is it that broken people like us, messed up people like us, can possibly hear Jesus' invitation and follow it and say, our Father in heaven. It's only one way. It's if we become one with Jesus. See, when Jesus instructs us to pray, our Father in heaven, he's actually welcoming us into oneness with the only one who has the right to call God his Father. Father. 
That's exactly what verse 14 says later on in the passage. I know it's not printed here, but at the, at later on in chapter three of Hebrews, the writer says, we have come to share in Christ. That's the point. We are sharers together. He has shared the blessings of God's fatherhood with all who trust in him. It is that doctrine of our union with Christ by which Jesus turns sinners into sons and daughters. That's the first wonder of our union with Christ that comes through in this passage, that he turns sinners, the broken like us. We clean up good on Sundays, but who are we really? Jesus takes people like us and turns us into sons and daughters and shares with us the privilege of being sons and daughters of the one true God. That's why the passage opens in verse 1 by referring to one another as brothers, that is, brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. This is not just for the guys out here. This is open to all who believe in him. We share a heavenly summons. We've been summoned by heaven for heaven. But friends, it's not just that we share in the blessing of what Christ earned because we bring something to this relationship too. But what we bring is not blessedness and glory and all the the wonder of our uh, perfect lives. We bring a whole lot of mess. We bring our own sin, our own disobedience. We bring things that God has condemned. And what's amazing is that Jesus does not stand over you saying, clean up your life and and then you can share this blessing. Now he knew what we were before he ever came to earth. He knew all of our evil actions all of our harsh words, all of our deeply harbored passions, and said, I will come and live and die for them. That's why right before this passage, at the end of Hebrews chapter two, the writer says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Friends, there's two sides to our union with Christ. All of his blessing becomes ours And all of our demerit becomes his. That's why we just sang, we just sang it a few moments ago, that he died the death we should have died. He lived the life we failed to live, and he died the death we should have died. And he bore it all. He absorbed it all. So that there's nothing left for you to add. Church attendance on a Sunday in October does not add to your being a daughter or a son of God. Putting money in the offering plate does not make you a better son, a a more elevated daughter in the family. Jesus did it all for you. This is the gospel. 
And he did not stay in that grave, but on the third day, he rose again to give us new life, to reanimate our existence and to usher in the renewal of all things. He calls us to be part of it. Friends, you are not too far gone. You have not outrun the long arms of God's love. So stop running. Turn from your own way and step into God's family. And indeed, as verse 1 says, it is a family where you find brothers and sisters who are, quite frankly, just as broken and messed up as you are, just as proud and arrogant, just as self-centered and selfish. We may be children of God, but we don't often act like it. And friends, that's just the reason that God hasn't summoned us to heaven yet, because he's trying to recreate us in his image, and surprisingly, he's using other people to do it. And that's where the second quotation from the Hebrew Bible appears. Again, it's the very next verse after our reading, from verses 7 through 11, that the writer quotes from the Psalms, Psalm 95. And it, and it refers back to the time when the 12 men went to spy on Cain and 10 were bad and 2 were good, okay? That's what Psalm 95 is talking about. And he says, you people were rebellious. You did not listen to my voice. I told you go in and take the land and you just would not do it. And so I was angry with that generation. 40 years they spent wandering in the wilderness. Our author brings this passage up because he is concerned that the danger that befell the people of Israel way back then threatened his Jewish Christian audience as well. By extension, as this letter has been preserved for us, it's a danger that every follower of Jesus faces. That danger is that our sin would deceive us and then harden us and then cause us to stop believing. Remember, there's two purposes to the book, not just to reestablish the grounds of our confidence in Jesus, but that existential purpose, which is don't give up. Don't give up. That's why verse six says, you see this? Do you have room in your mind for this statement? We are his house. We are his family. We are his household. That's what that means. We are his house if, indeed, we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. He's not saying that those who enjoy union with Christ can somehow divorce themselves from that union. But neither is he saying what so many uh, preachers, frankly, say these days, which is, hey, you know, make a decision for Jesus, sign this card, and man, you've got your you know, eternal fire insurance policy, and you go live however you want. Neither is that true. Not only does our union with Christ bring us this great blessing of being sons and daughters, but union with Christ manifests in enduring faith and obedience. Those who are part of God's family more and more look like it. Maybe fits and starts, maybe two steps forward, three steps back. And I didn't misstep there. Because a lot of times it does feel very much that way. But he's saying that those who are part of God's family are those who, by his grace, persist. And friends, that's where the family comes in. And if you think about the situation of these people, threatened by everybody, 
how in the world are they going to keep on believing? Well, friends, it's through our brothers and sisters. Hebrews 3.12 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see the logic of that line? Hardened by sin's deceitfulness? Sin deceives, and then it hardens. And perhaps the most deceptive sin for those of us who are believers in Jesus is the sin of self-righteousness. Because we see it as, well, that's a good thing, so I'm going to give myself wholly to that. Sin tricks us, and then it hardens us. And the remedy to it is to encourage one another, not to come down on people like, you're messed up. You need to fix your life like my life. Your life needs to look more like mine does, okay? So we're going to start meeting once a week, you know, at four in the morning, and I'm going to tell you all the stuff that's changed my life because your life needs to. It's not encouraging one another. It's not coming down on another. It's coming alongside of another. It's walking with people. It's building meaningful relationships. It's spending time with people. It's not just having Bible studies, though Bible studies can be part of it, but it's actually knowing another person well enough, knowing another person well enough that you can see their blind spots and help them avoid sin's deception. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century German pastor who lost his life in resistance to the Nazis, puts it memorably in his book, Life Together. He says, if we're going to continue believing and following Jesus, help must come from the outside. Like, we can't do it ourselves. And he says, it has come and comes daily and anew in the word of Jesus Christ, bringing us redemption and righteousness, innocence and blessedness. But, he goes on, God put this word into the mouths of human beings so that it may be passed to others. When people are deeply affected by the word, they tell it to other people. Therefore, Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. We're not anybody's answer. We're no one's Messiah. We are the broken, not the guru. We are the sinner, not the sin police. We are the beggar, not the bread. But we have this privilege as sons and daughters to take the bread we've found and share it with others, that, they might, that their hungry stomachs might be full, that their doubting hearts might find comfort. That kind of relationship is costly. Encourage one another daily, every day. As if to drive home the point, as long as it's called today, wow. It's generous, it's not stingy, it's reliable, not once in a while, it's purposeful, not aimless. This passage isn't, isn't saying, again, that every single conversation you have with someone else here from Emmanuel has to be, like, about today's liturgy. But it was, what it is moving us towards is cultivating deep enough relationships that we know not just the Sunday veneer, but we actually get to know one another's hearts. It's calling us to a place of vulnerability that frankly is scary. 
It's calling us to a kind of courage to open up about ourselves so that we might be real in walking together. But friends, it's also, at the same time, part of the privilege of our union with Christ. Not only does our union with Christ turn sinners into sons and daughters, and not only does it manifest in faith and obedience, but the last great wonder of union with Christ from this passage is that it makes us brothers and sisters. Did you know that the early church was accused of incest because they called each other brothers and sisters? The watching world looked on, and it was so strange and foreign that the only conclusion they had was they must all be sleeping together because they have such a a family thing going on there. Seriously. I mean, what kind of community is that that makes the world go, we have no other explanation for it except incest? See, they recognize that their union with Christ was not this individual personalized blessing, but that their union with Christ was something that they shared with others, making us family. And you know, in family, you put up with a lot of weird stuff, right? I mean, I've, I've been to family reunions on, on you know, my side of the family, and everyone, you know, we, we didn't have T-shirts, Right? identifying the Hoskinsons, but I was kind of glad. Like, we didn't. I'm like, I'm not sure I want that guy wearing my shirt. Like, <laughs> but friends, part of the blessing of our union with Jesus is that we are family, that we are brothers and sisters. And that means we need to make one another a priority. The gospel compels us to it. And that really is the final wonder of this Simple title to the prayer. When Jesus invites us to address the God of heaven, he does not invite us to say, my Father in heaven. Though that is true, he instructs us to pray, our Father in heaven. With whom are you praying that prayer? Who can you reach out to and invite into praying that prayer together? Would you bow with me and pray? Lord, we pray that by your grace, you would give us the courage to be vulnerable and the love of our Lord Jesus himself and the empowerment of your spirit that we might grow into a community that reflects your radical generosity to us in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Emmanuel Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jim Saladin, the minister here. At Emmanuel, we seek to see, describe, and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City and ultimately the world. We rely on the generous giving of people like you. Consider supporting our ministries at www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.